Steph. And you're listening to The Thirst, a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture, including film, TV and music, as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. You can find us online with Twitter at The Thirst, Facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. We're also on, over on Instagram at The Thirst Pod. We're on Podbean and iTunes and Apple Podcasts. You can find us there by searching for The Thirst. You can also do the same on Spotify and you can email us if you would like to. It's thethirstpod at gmail.com. We've also got our blog as well, where we share links to anything that we might refer to in the episode. Then, And the URL for that is thethirstpod.wordpress.com. This is episode 49. 49. I'm going to be honest with you and say I've run out of steam and I have not done any prep for this. So, oh, It's just me. It's just me searching for films I've never watched and celebrities. Yeah, but you like celebrity birthdays. I so. really do. It is, as I've said many times before, falls just shortly behind the Forbes list of richest celebrities and general net worth knowledge as my favourite thing. Episode 49. So, Days of 49 is a song by Bob Dylan. Sure. 49% is a record by Roiksop. Oh, it is. That's true. Do you remember Roiksop? Yeah. I, uh, do you know what? I was actually listening to Roiksop on my walk earlier. Were you really? Yeah, 100%. I swear no one listens to Roiksop. I do all the time. How dare you? Wow, that's lovely. I've learned something about you. Lodge 49 is a comedy drama show starring... Is it Wyatt Russell? Wyatt Russell. It is Wyatt Russell. This is the second Wyatt Russell conversation we've had in the space of two days. Love that for us. It is true. Unusual. We'll get to talk about that at some point in the future. But yes, Lodge 49. I did watch an episode of it once and then for some reason I didn't pursue it. But <laughs> Great. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, celebrities who are 49. Here we go. <clears throat> Snoop Dogg. Sure. Elon Musk. I had to put one that we hate. So Great. Uh, and that's Snoop Dogg. We really like Elon Musk. <laughs> Winona Ryder, Winona Forever. Billy Joe Armstrong. Uh, American Idiot. Mark Hoppus, yes, that is in fact. <laughs> What's my age again? What's my age again? 49, Mark Hoppus, you're 49. Jared Leto, your mate. I'm pretty sure we've oh. had him about three times now because we're doing this so slowly. You <laughs> <laughs> uh, might have been on the last episode. Uh, Sandra O, oh, we like Sandra O. Oh. Yep. Missy Elliott, Paul Bettany. Vision. Ewan McGregor. Hot. Hot. And uh, Sasha and Baron Cohen. Tall. A tall drink of water for April and not me. <laughs> Do you not fancy Sasha Baron Cohen? I can't get past the Borat thing, really. Do you fancy him as Borat? Uh, oh, you do, you absolute... <laughs> what a revelation! Jesus Christ. Should we do some news? <laughs> yeah, can we? Because I can't, I can't sit on that for very long. That was <laughs> too much. Now I know why we were watching Borat so much last year. For God's sake. The Grammys. So, the Grammys 2021, they are the 63rd annual Grammy Awards. And the ceremony took place at the LA Convention Centre on the 14th of March, so a couple of a couple of weeks ago now. And of course, it recognises the best recordings, compositions and artists of the year. And this year it was looking at artists between the 1st of September 2019 and 31st of August 2020, which is always a bit mad because that's like, well, it's just such a long time ago now, isn't it? It almost feels redundant, weird. The ceremony was originally scheduled for the 31st of January. However, it was 
postponed to the 14th of March due to a spike in COVID-19 cases in LA. And also due to COVID, the ceremony was hosted very, very differently this year. It changed venues slightly. The usual venue, the Staples Centre, served as a backdrop, but the LA Convention Centre itself was the main place where the event was hosted. This is exciting venue chat, isn't it? (laughs) The show was a mix of live and pre-recorded performances, and it was all kind of organised to feel as if it was entirely live. And the setup of the event itself involved five equally sized stages arranged in a circle. And you had uh, one of the stages for the presenters and then the other four were for the performers so they could perform in a COVID safe way. And there was, of course, no audience. Uh, And South African comedian Trevor Noah hosted the ceremony. Trevor Noah looks a bit like The Weeknd. Didn't realise this. He does, yeah, but... He does look a little bit like The Weeknd. And and that's a real... If you Google it, lots of people have discussed this before. I'm just quite late to the... uh, I'm just quite late to the show. I'm sure we've covered the Grammys before, but this year I feel like we were sort of slightly more excited than usual just because of the roster of performers mainly. Saying that, I don't, neither of us watched the whole ceremony. You didn't watch the whole ceremony, did you? No, I don't normally care about the Grammys, but like you said, this year the lineup for it was just like extremely relevant to our interests. Mm-hmm. So I was looking forward to it, but I definitely didn't watch it live. I just woke up to like all of the stuff online for my perusal, which is always quite satisfying. Well, the good thing about social media and the bad thing, I guess, is that we can just cherry pick what we want to want to watch nowadays instead of t- having to sit through the whole thing. Do you remember when you mm. used to have to do that on TV at a really awkward time in the morning? Yeah, not great. And I, I, I mean, I most vividly remember it for like the MTV Awards and stuff like that. So much. The VMAs. I did it quite a lot for the VMAs. Anyway, before we talk a bit about the winners and the performances and the ceremony, I thought it would probably be worth acknowledging, because I feel like this might come up a bit, that there was lots of discussion and debate and anger really ahead of the Grammys this year, which was kind of spurred by The weekend, who boycotted the awards. Um, he's chosen to boycott the awards this year and in future because he wasn't nominated in any categories such as Record of the Year or Album or Song when um, After Hours was such a big record. So he was pretty upset about that and I think a few other celebrities as well. So Zayn stepped in and posted a, an angry tweet saying, fuck the Grammys and Halsey and a few others Ariana Grande, Nicki Minaj, um, quite a few people declined to perform as well. And yeah, so there was just quite a lot of discussion and criticism at the forefront of the Grammys, really, I think, this year ahead of the the ceremony taking place. And a lot of that ties into the way that the way the winners are picked. So they have this anonymous expert committee, which is very strange. They have the final say on the nominees and they can even add nominees that voters didn't select at all. And it's all very anonymous, obviously shrouded in mystery. So there's not a lot of transparency around who is being picked, who, you know, what those big decisions are and how they're being made in the background. So that's kind of kicked off a string of withdrawals and avoidances and I I feel like it might come up a bit in our talking about it so I thought it was worth acknowledging if we talk about the winners first Mm -hmm. uh, how did you feel about who I mean there's quite there are quite a lot of categories at the Grammys and we're not going to go into all of them it's going to be basically the big hitters but how did you find it this year 
I feel like it's fine. I mean, oh, the thing with the Grammys is, like, because of the weird time frames for stuff that mm. they have, I often find that at, like, Grammy ceremonies, the things that you, like, think should have won for the previous year aren't nominated because they've come out, like... Not too late. Too late. So it's always this weird thing where you're, like, slightly behind. So this year, though, did feel slightly different because mm-hmm. it did feel like it was um, acknowledging things that we had all engaged with or enjoyed in the last 12 months and Mm. particularly the 12 months of lockdown as well so for Mm. example you know like seeing duo get lots of awards for like future nostalgia well that's obviously an album we've talked about at length Mm. that we've Mm. really really enjoyed taylor swift getting recognition as well you know like so the two records that she put out last year were like really big deals in the period of lockdown so from a personal point of view i mean there was just nothing that was like particularly surprising apart from one which i wonder if you might also have noted but it which was the Billie Eilish winning over Megan over Megan yeah yeah and I think that was the only thing that I was a bit like oh you've kind of fucked it here but apart from that I don't know I just wasn't particularly like shocked but then I wonder if it's because I don't necessarily pay attention to the Grammys at large beyond the performances most years. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're probably right. And it's kind of, I feel like it's hard to put a finger on my feelings about the Grammys this year, usually because I don't I don't have a lot of investment in who wins. And there's usually maybe a performance I'm bothered about. So yeah. it's never something that we kind of give a lot of time to. Whereas this year, like I really like and enjoy a lot of the artists who did win, but they were quite predictable, especially in the big categories. There's not well, really... that's what I mean. You know, there's nothing very... And it's always the kind of the elite of the elite, isn't it? So yeah. it's your, you know, Harry Styles, Dua Lipa, Billie Eilish, like very, very big artists who are going to... Beyonce, who are going to take all, you know, sweep the big categories. Mm. In one regard, it's not that exciting. And it, it certainly doesn't do anything to kind of, I don't know, it, it feels slightly more... I don't want to use the word diversified, diversified in terms of genre and all kinds of things. Feels slightly better this year, but in that, I don't know, there's like a slightly broader representation of types of artists, but also, I mean, it's not that different, is it? And there is still a lot of upset around how people are chosen and who gets the spotlight and who doesn't. Yeah, completely. And I think it is that like complete lack of transparency. And I I did find the weekend's reaction to things like very, very interesting and also understandable because like, you know, regardless of whether or not you like the weekend or have engaged with the weekend's music at any stage, like I do know from, you know my sort of vaguely outside perspective that like that was a big album last year Mm -hmm. for a lot of people you know like that particular song the name I can't remember right now but it's the one that like was a viral TikTok sensation yeah yeah during lockdown and I'm not saying that like he should get nominated because his song was a TikTok thing but it is also like that album was a big deal yeah it I mean it ticked a lot of boxes in terms of um, not just popularity with listeners, but like popularity with critics. So you'd yeah. think it would kind of be, yeah, a given across the board. But um, and it does tie into, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around who cuddles up to who, who's gifting what in order to maybe get, you know, their name on the Grammys list and things like that. And it it, do, it is just all shrouded in such mystery, especially when we're going to go on and talk about some film awards this year who have made quite big steps to try and revise their processes. And it's worked quite well. A couple of other, I guess, what, did I have any other notes? Album of the Year, Folklore, I mean, fine. 
good. That's what I mean. Like, it's not surprising, is it? I mean, it was... No. On the one hand, it's not surprising, any of these wins. But also, I think it was interesting looking at the winners from my perspective, because I do feel, like I said, the Grammys are often, like, running a retrospective. So it was kind of cool to just be like, it's March 2021, Folklore is the album of the year, because it came out last year and was a big deal. Well, that makes perfect sense, as opposed to it being something that came out in, like, 2019. Yeah. Women generally won big, so Beyonce set a new record she's had 28 wins now and 79 nominations which is crazy taylor swift became the first female artist ever to win album of the year three times so that's great megan Thee stallion won best new artist and that's the first time uh female rappers won the award since 1999 so that's all great i mean album of the year i would say fiona apple's right there but fine And yeah, you said Billie Eilish winning record of the year over Megan was really strange. Billie herself seemed pretty shocked that that had happened. Her reaction to winning reminded me a lot of the year that Macklemore won over Kendrick Lamar. And he was like really apologetic to the point of like making it like really awkward. Oh God, it's a bit of a fine balance, isn't it? Because you can can read on Billie's face that she wasn't expecting it, fine. But then when they really, really go to a lot of effort to point out that they shouldn't be up there over someone yeah, else it's like we all know much. that <laughs> it's it's making it awkward like get off the stage i thought it was quite surprising that bts were overlooked so much yeah that is weird isn't it because i i'm not personally a bts person but like to really overlook like the global phenomenon mm-hmm. that is like bts is just mad really 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 mad before we go on to performances and ceremony also i like glancing at best metal performance every year because i mean traditionally when i was a teenager young adult that would have been everything that i'm into who are body count body count is ice t's band have you never heard body count before absolutely not april no idea i've just learned who milkshake duck is like i'm so behind so the thing with regards to that particular category is that like fair play body count who are like a legit band if you're into that kind of thing no idea it's just because it's like iced tea as in like the rapper yeah. Ice-T, that's his band. But I'd really hoped that Power Trip were going to win because mm. Power Trip, really, really great band, but they sadly lost their lead singer Riley Gale last year. Mm. So it just would have been like quite a nice acknowledgement of actually like Power Trip's relevance in the field and how mm. actually they're, they're extremely beloved. So like big Ice-T fan, but also would have been really psyched if Power Trip would have got it. But mm. Mm. It's also makes sense that we had three awards that went to kind of protest songs so we had lockdown by anderson pack i can't breathe by her or her uh, which won song of the year and black parade which was sort of beyonce's release for mm-hmm. best r&b performance that feels very just reflects last year in a nutshell really doesn't mm-hmm. it performances and ceremony then so as we said the sort of setup of the show this year was a mixture of pre-record and live footage from what i saw it kind of worked well like way better than awkward zoom setups with people sitting in living rooms. From the performances that I watched, I couldn't differentiate no. like what was live and what wasn't. I think I would need to be told explicitly like what was actually happening there and then mm-hmm. as, and what had been recorded prior. Yeah, and it just avoided all those really horrible, awkward tech problems that yeah. people have had. That I mean, it's been amazing to see like the Golden Globes fuck up in terms of not being able to unmute someone. You just think like, this is the Golden Globes. Like why... <laughs> Why haven't people got a handle on Zoom? Yeah, I feel like the Grammys did manage to finesse it and actually got it into like a workable scenario where they could have people 
there you know socially distanced on tables or whatever so they could have that element of it and then they could have the performance like it definitely felt like less from the clips i've seen it just felt less jolty and less like cringe inducing mm. than a lot than a lot of the other ceremonies so like fair play to them for making it work finally someone's managed to do it a year later it's right. taken everyone this long. I mean, I'm saying this as someone, you know, it's happened in our workplace as well. It has truly taken 12 months for everyone to iron out the problems and come up mm-hmm. with something quite slick. So the main ceremony featured a ton of performances, including Harry Styles, Billie Eilish, Haim, Dua Lipa, Taylor Swift, Megan Thee Stallion and Cardi B, Doja Cat and loads of others. Are there any performances in particular that you watched and you enjoyed? Well, should we start with the Harry Styles elephant in the room? Just because it's top of my list. So Harry performed Watermelon Sugar. Always lovely to see Harold turn up to these things and perform. Lots of exciting news regarding that performance, i.e. he wore a leather suit with, with no nothing underneath. Hasn't done that before. Hasn't done that before. That was a new and exciting adventure for us all. Sarah Jones is pregnant. This will mean absolutely nothing to anyone other than like Vaughn. Yeah, extreme excitement. Harry, uh, Harry and Mitch are pregnant. I meant Harry Sarah and Mitch, Mitch but it, it happens. It could be, it could equally be Harry and Mitch, but it's in fact Sarah and Mitch who are pregnant. Very, very exciting. These are two members of Harry's band who are a couple in real life as well. My favourite thing was like waking up to that news, being bombarded with that picture of Mitch and Sarah sat backstage oh and God. like Sarah looking like a goddess with like massive bumping in like a jumpsuit. Like a leather jumpsuit thing. Leather jumpsuit, honestly. And then just like telling people like they were my friends going like, oh my God, Mitch and Sarah are having a baby. My friend Sarah's pregnant and she wore like a leather outfit and played drums whilst heavily pregnant. Oh, it's Harry Styles' drummer, my close personal friend. Close personal friend. I was very excited about that. And the fact that Dev Hines played with them. That was great. Incredible, incredible work. So pleased. Just, I mean, obviously it was just a joy. All of that was a joy. Loved it. Constant. The feather bow is... Not so much. Did you like that? I was not into it. Harry has his flaws. So his initial outfit, his like casual non-performance outfit, did look like, like an MTV Awards outfit that like... A member of the Mickey Mouse Club would wear truly awful, <laughs> I would say. And the Good feather boa, in fact, made it worse. It's like drunk at a wedding. Wasn't into it. He, I think he had three different feather boas, which might be too many. I feel like maybe if he'd had one, the novelty of many. it might have been enough to carry it off. But three different feather boas, not sure. I don't know whether it worked for me personally. It did not work for me, but I respect it. Of course, if he asked, I'd tell him it was great, but he won't listen to this, so it's fine. All of that was lovely. And of course, we had Harry and Taylor who were reunited really awkwardly too. Honestly, the the, the interaction that probably sparked a thousand fanfic. It was so great because it's something that everyone who is a Harry Styles or Taylor Swift fan has been waiting to um, happen for a very long time. For anyone who doesn't know, they did date briefly and they haven't exactly stayed in touch, really. So seeing them together and it being caught on camera and also fans being dedicated enough to read his lips and work out what he was saying, it did show that like it doesn't matter if you're a huge celebrity, you're still going to have that really awkward conversation with your ex where you're like, oh, nice to see you. Oh, how are you all right? Yeah. Love to see it. They're normal people like us. Talking of Taylor, I I personally very much enjoyed her like folklore and evermore mashup performance, mm-hmm. accompanied by Jack Antonoff and Aaron Dessner. 
two men extremely dear to my heart so I just feel like it was personally very precious to me a little moment with them the three of them the Jack Antonoff of it all was lovely wasn't it he is just a delight and it's always really funny because Aaron Desner of the National obviously like watching him perform with Taylor is just funny because I've seen him obviously perform many times with the National and he's just like cool dad on stage and then seeing him next to Taylor it's just even funnier I don't know I bet hard to explain but just just very funny I bet I took a lot from Dua Lipa's performance I do think she's objectively like the most beautiful woman ever I just think she's gorgeous and I love her so much and I just will never get over her dancing in what sense Dua Lipa is so talented. She has an amazing voice. She is flawless. She's so beautiful. She really is. She's such a lovely person and she's got great book taste. She's always posting book recommendations and they're things that we read and it's great. We'd, We'd do really well in a book club together, but she can't dance for shit. And for some reason, they keep giving her this choreography. I think I'd said to you, I watched the performance, didn't I? And I said, like, the thing I'm taking from this is that you can almost see that she's, like, in her head. She's, like, counting. She's counting the steps, isn't she? And I and I really respect it because it must be really hard if you're, like, not naturally a person that, like, leans really into choreography. Like, there are so many performers. And truly, I am not. <laughs> There are so many performers out there that are like, like that is that one of their assets that they're mm. just a, they make it look like flawless, um, and it's not that do it makes it look bad, but it just it's very like it just doesn't come naturally in the way that everything else does. I like that back in the day when these sort of choreographed dance moves first came about in her performances, you could see that like the dance tutor was like, okay, you're not very good at this. So what we'll do is if you kind of make it seem like you're doing it in a kind of, in a way like you don't care, like you're unenthusiastic about it. So you're doing it in a really chill, cool way. So sort of do it as a tokenistic thing, but make it like you've, you've got it on lockdown, but you just can't be asked to do it. That didn't work because it just showed up the fact that she really can't dance. She always looked bored. Bored and clunky. So now they're like, okay, no, we have to tighten this up. I think she probably has improved, but maybe she should just walk around and sing. But also commend her for it because she's very, very dedicated to the dance. I really respect it. I just think perhaps it's not her strong point. Yes. Final performance I want to bring up is the WAP performance, obviously, (laughs) with Megan and Cardi. What did you think of that? I can't believe it happened at the Grammys. I can't believe it was fucking dubbed. I do understand that the setup they had going on was quite involved. So I understand that like lip syncing, like lip syncing isn't anything new, is it? So it's not like that's a shocking thing, but it just, it was like very, very obvious again, which is fine, but it just felt really stunted. And then you could tell it was just too obviously dubbed. I found it really distracting to watch it sort of the singing, I say singing, the rapping kind of miss its cue by like a half a second every time the timing was like extremely off Megan Thee Stallion is amazing though I like that she just like sauntered on does her bit and then you see her just like sauntering off like she literally does like walks on and walks off Post Malone loved it too you can tell I was just going to say actually that was one of my favourite things about the sort of performances is that you would occasionally see like a, like a, a, another performer like, by the side of the stage yes. like watching yes yeah, so artist reactions to other artists was a really nice thing wasn't it you got to watch them kind of they'd watch over each other's performances and kind of be their like little hype person on the side of the stage kind of applaud and cheer them because there's no other audience and then yeah and then the next one would take their spot it was nice yeah it was really cute i really liked Billie eilish watching harry (laughs) 
was really cute. Billy was all of us. So generally, that's probably the most we've ever spoken about the Grammys, to be honest. It really is the most interested that I've been in the Grammys for like such a long time. Like the calibre of the performances and what they managed to achieve given like the restrictions with COVID and everything like that. Like I think it's pretty commendable. And it was like, I was just interested to see how they were going to do this because it's one thing when it's like an award ceremony, like film or TV wise, but for something that's usually so performance heavy, I wondered what they were going to do with it. I think they did very well, didn't they? It gave us sort of quite a slick event with some really good, strong performances. Maybe some predictable wins, but, but you know, fairly um, better across the board than they have been in a few years. So I'm hoping that, I don't know, maybe after this year and the particular backlash that they've had, they could, I don't know, make an effort to make their sort of voting and decision making more transparent. So that's something for them to think about going forward. So from one award ceremony to another, not a ceremony, but the nomination. So the nominees for the 74th BAFTAs were announced on the 9th of March. The ceremony is this year taking place on the 11th of April, much like the Oscars, which we will come to. The ceremony's timing, etc., was adjusted to take into consideration the broader impact of COVID on the film industry. So I think we did touch upon the controversy last year Mm -hmm. surrounding the overwhelming lack of diversity in the nominees so as a result of that I think 120 changes were made to its awards process I obviously haven't got them all noted but the most you're not going to list them sadly not no there is a report that you can read if you are particularly inclined I think the biggest for those is that they've included adding 1,000 new members to its committee and limiting the amount that studios in particular can spend campaigning for nominations. There's also been a new voting system introduced. So within this, it includes three rounds of voting in each category. Each voter now receives a randomised list of 15 films they must watch as well as many others possible. I think BAFTA is one of the first awards bodies that's like sort of made it like compulsory to have to watch things, which I often find quite funny the process of things like BAFTA and Oscars is that until now it's never really been compulsory for you to actually watch everything before you vote so Mm -hmm. I think it's a very good shift there oh yeah so I haven't got a list of all the nominees but the really kind of standout ones were that this year uh, Nomadland and Rocks which we did briefly talk about when we did our end of year roundup both led the nominees with seven nominations followed by Minari, Promising Young Woman, Mank and The Father with six. So I've got like a few sort of things that stood out for me. Was there anything in particular that you kind of took away from the nominations? And Yeah, I mean, firstly, when these were sort of first announced, well, I didn't go and check them straight off the bat because after last year, I just almost couldn't be bothered. I was like, I don't even want to see it because I'm just going to get wound up. And then it was only after seeing such a, a tidal wave of positivity on my Twitter feed that I was like, oh, apparently I had permission to go and check these out because I might not be mad those changes have made a huge amount of difference it's wild isn't it a huge amount of diversity in terms of like genre countries represented actors everything it's just made a really big difference really great as you mentioned for Nomadland and um, Chloe Zhao like best film leading actress director cinematography editing sound adapted screenplay that's crazy and I'm not surprised in a lot of ways but it is fantastic also really loved Rocks and Minari in particular so I'm happy to see them 
really hoped Sound of Metal would get recognition. So, and I think there's four nominations maybe for Sound of Metal. So that's lovely too. For me personally, I have to say that I'm really excited to see His House and St. Maud feature on um, in some of these categories. So His House had three nominations for Outstanding British Film, Leading Actress and Outstanding Debut by a British Writer, Director or Producer. And then St. Maud had uh, a nomination for Outstanding British Film and Outstanding Debut. And um, Morfid Clark also is nominated for the EE Rising Star Award. These are two films that I both mentioned in my 2020 roundup. His House was easily the best horror film of um, last year, I think. And it's just so nice to see horror films represented because, you know, they're not often held in as high regard by um, voting bodies like this. So that was, that was brilliant. So many others, really. Yeah, leading actor and actress categories were the best they've probably been in a long time. Mostly, I was just very happy to see that it, it wasn't just entirely mank and mank and nomadland really i thought it could just be mank and nomadland across the board for better or for worse no it's quite funny actually looking at these nominations and then looking at the nominations for the oscars as well which we again Mm. will come to i feel like the bafta this year have really like ticked a lot of boxes from in terms of things we're interested in you Mm -hmm. mentioned the sort of like more diverse in terms of genre and that's Mm. absolutely the case i thought it was really brilliant to see that sarah gavron and sharon murphy were both nominated for best direction that's sarah gavron for rocks and shannon murphy for baby teeth baby teeth as well which was excellent to see you mentioned the best actor category it's lovely to see mads in there for another round bookie backray for best actress as well for rocks the one that really stole my heart was of course little alan kim alan nominated for best supporting actor for minari so pleased The sort of strange thing in that particular category as well is that Clark Peters is nominated for The Fly of Blood over Mm. Delroy Lindo. Mm. Clark Peters is very, very good in The Fly of Blood, but once again, Delroy Lindo for me is the real standout there, so that's a bit of an odd... It's crazy, isn't it? ...choice, isn't it? Dominique Fishback was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Judas and the Black Messiah, which was really well-deserved, and another one for Rocks was um, Kosar Ali as well, and that was lovely to see her performance picked up on there because she was really, really great in Rocks as well as um, Bucky Backray. I think the only interesting thing where Mank is concerned, which is not uh, the two words that I don't think should be together in a sentence because I don't think Mank is interesting in the slightest, is that Jack Fincher, that's David Fincher's dad, was recognised for Mank for screenplay, but he hasn't been at the Oscars. Mm. But I mean, generally, I just thought that actually the nominations, like much like you'd said, I absolutely had just sort of like saw they were coming out and was like, oh, well, I, you know, whatever. Like they're just going to be predictable. And I was really taken back actually by like, the breadth of things that were considered yeah yeah right a lot of it felt like it fitted there were fewer baffling entries there were fewer omissions there were obviously a a couple of omissions that were pretty obvious but a lot of it slotted together a lot better and um, even things like uh, obviously Mank did get quite a few nominations but a lot of them were in the more technical categories which kind of you know fine I can live with that because I can understand that it is technically quite impressive but do you know what I mean it just sort of a lot of it made sense yeah there were definitely there was less upset with for me you know less upset and less confusion with other award ceremonies so I'm actually like for the first time in ages like intrigued to see what happens I'm excited to see I feel like I could actually you know 
I mean, I'm about to, about to say I could I could sit down and watch all of the BAFTAs, but who knows if that will happen again? Could mm-hmm. just go on social media, but it'll probably happen around tea time, so maybe we can. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to it for the first time in ages, which is which is quite nice, I would say. Also worth just adding, stand by for more awards talk, and we'll talk about the Oscar nominations shortly and later in the episode. So moving on to some things that we've been enjoying recently on the movies front, we've got two things we're going to talk about. The first of which is Cherry. It's a 2021 American crime drama directed by Anthony and Joe Russo from a screenplay by Angela Russo Otsot and Jessica Goldberg based on the autofiction novel of the same name by Nico Walker. The film stars Tom Holland, Tiara Bravo, Jack Rayner, Michael Raspoli and Jeff Wahlberg and follows an army veteran suffering from PTSD who resorts to robbing banks to support his opioid addiction. Cherry did get like a brief cinematic release in the States where things are still open on February 26, 2021, but it was released digitally on Apple TV Plus on March the 12th, 2021, which is where we saw it. So I don't think we've talked about Cherry before, maybe in terms of things we were hypothetically looking forward to, but Cherry in the book form, I again don't think I've talked about but it's interesting so it's the debut novel by Nico Walker Walker had been in a federal prison in Ashland Kentucky for bank robbery since 2013 and wrote the book on a typewriter over the course of several years he was released from prison in early October 2019 but the book itself was published in August of 2018 so like I said it's autofiction so Walker himself was a military veteran who struggled with drug addiction and did rob banks hence why he was in prison but there are several differences between the real life actions and the book contents there was a buzzfeed piece in 2013 that was written about nico walker so matthew johnson who co-owns a publishing house read it and then he and walker started talking and he was the person who told him that he should write a book about his experiences we will link to the buzzfeed piece it's extremely interesting it's where i first came across nico walker and it's what made me want to read cherry so i suppose that's like a little bit of an overview you about it so that kind of going into the film I suppose the first thing to sort of think about is what was our relationship to the book and to the film and what were our expectations I mean do you want to go first all I will say is that I I had no intention of reading this book really I read this book because you needed someone to talk about this book with and to be honest once they'd announced Cherry as a film through Apple TV and that Tom Holland was attached I was like okay you know I could get down with reading this book and April's bursting at the scene she needs someone to offload to so I would do it as a kindly service to her it wasn't that much thanks so much but you know I I breezed through it pretty quickly actually and this was quite recently as well only a couple of months ago I was dimly aware that it had a lot of I hate to use the word hype but you know, there was a lot of expectation when this book came out, I think, that it would be a kind of really important meditation on the way that America uses its soldiers and then sort of chucks them away and kind of PTSD and the opioid epidemic, because that all kind of ties together. I personally, after having read this book, did not understand the excitement or hype around it at all. My memory might be quite flawed, but I felt it was quite weighted towards did some smack, had sex, robbed a bank, maybe. Yeah. It didn't feel as revelatory as it could have been. No, not at all. And I feel like you kind of felt the same. You definitely were more disappointed because you had... I. It's worth saying I had very low hopes reading this book because I thought poor April was really disappointed by it. 
Yeah, I mean, I essentially coerced you into reading this. So I read the BuzzFeed piece, probably not around the time it came out, but probably a couple of years after it. And then I was sort of desperate to get hold of the book. I ended up reading it sort of the end of 2018 because I was just really intrigued by the whole thing. And I initially got on really well with the book as in like progressed well and then I absolutely stalled. I mean, this is like the reason Goodreads is like a bit of a godsend in that you can kind of like track your process. And I went back and I had a look and I didn't finish it until like the end of January 2019. It's not very long. It's not a very long book and it's not particularly dense. So I think I just found it like a bit of a slog. I did have a lot of issues with it and I think I had been let down because I do I do think that like whatever you make of Nico Walker and the story itself, it is incredibly interesting. I could do a whole thing about like the reasons I think the book of flaw but this is why I wanted you to read it because my review of the book when I read it was like well I've just seen that they've optioned it so it would be really cool to see what they make of it I guess it could probably work Sebastian Stan or Garrett Headland would be great like because that's when I was reading it I was like well that's the that's the person I've got in my head of course you've got Sebastian Stan in your head separate issue but like when I'm just thinking about like someone doing this kind of like performance it's it's like someone like that it's not fucking Tom Holland you mean to say you did not see Tom Holland in the role of Nico Walker you don't think there's any resemblance between them no of all the like sinewy like young actors at the moment hell even I think Timmy would have been better like no offence he did a great job and beautiful boy just saying precisely so that was my relationship to the book those were my levels of expectation whether i just i don't know could it work couldn't i think for me it was the the real game changer was like the embargo broke and then wasn't feeling particularly optimistic but we did sit down we did watch it there are a lot of things that the film presents us with it's got a lot going on so i I guess it's probably sensible to kind of break them down slightly so the main two things i suppose it does target is ptsd and substance abuse so what did you think that the portrayal of both was like in the film was it convincing was it flawed you know what did you pick up on I don't really know what to call Tom Holland I'm gonna call him Tom Holland because Tom Holland doesn't have a really have a name is he Cherry yeah I think I think Cherry because it's sort of like the rookie soldier I guess okay so I I mean I guess it's worth saying that the structure is kind of slightly weird and that it's sort of almost like it's told in acts and there's kind of three stories in in one really here and a big Mm -hmm. part of the book is Cherry's time in Iraq which was one of the most compelling parts of the book and is definitely one of the most compelling parts of the film I actually thought it was yeah I was kind of gripped when I was watching that bit you know this idea of being easily drafted into something that he didn't really want to do and wasn't prepared for um, and had kind of just signed up for and the, the subsequent kind of harrowing reality of what he has to face as a medic in particular you know not being properly trained just not being ready to face some just absolutely horrific violence so I found that part of the film actually very gripping the leap from Iraq afterwards he kind of comes back from Iraq and then within about five seconds he's a full-blown heroin addict I just felt was quite edited and told quite strangely so I I almost had no idea how we got there it was like a bit of a leap I know there was a kind of there's a moment where he speaks to someone who's sort of seeking help and they basically aren't giving him a lot of help or sympathy and they basically say you know have you ever tried oxycontin great uh, and then from there he is he's a full-blown addict it kind of felt like i have no idea how we got there i really wanted to delve a bit deeper into this this very true reality of 
a country that turns its back on its veterans Mm -hmm. and there are no properly made measures in real place there's nothing no infrastructure really to support these people and this is what happens so I found that and I wanted to kind of interrogate that a bit more and kind of like the book you don't spend a lot of time like with that at all and it, it really goes in heavy on the bank robbery side of things so that was kind of my feeling I guess in a nutshell about the PTSD and substance abuse aspects. Yeah, I really agree with that. I do wish it had been more fleshed out. I think that it could have been like a really interesting exploration into the impact of war, like generally, but particularly post 9-11, because it's supposed to be in that 2000s period. The Russo brothers have made a really big deal about how the film itself is about the opioid crisis, but I just don't think it is. No. Where it is at its most interesting is looking at the war. It reminded Mm. me of things like Jarhead and the HBO series Generation Kill, you know, like all of those things Mm -hmm. that are kind of looking at what happens when you're sent off to this particular era of conflict. I think I made reference to Cherry when we may have covered Vice on the podcast. Mm -hmm because I was reading Cherry at the time that we went to see Adam McKay's Vice and one of the things that I then thought about subsequently when I was reading Cherry after having seen the film is that there's a section of Vice where it talks about loosely the fact that there is absolutely no infrastructure Mm. for veterans that come home. There's a lot of lip service, isn't there? And nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. And that side of things with Cherry was particularly interesting that you see him going off to war because you he doesn't really have any prospects i think it's slightly clearer in the book that he basically has like nothing else to do mm-hmm. so he just signs up and and then ships out the fact that he's waited with the burden of being like an army medic despite having like little to no training which is fairly standard but that in itself is like wild i feel like that part actually sorry to interrupt that bit about not being properly trained as a medic again i think that was covered quite substantially in the book and you really got that sense that he was ill-prepared and maybe that didn't come across as enough in the film either that's kind of nitpicking a bit but i found that again very interesting because i think something that we've almost been led to believe is like oh you're a medic are you you get easy you're not having to go in and do the hard fight is often the thing that i've kind of heard people say and the reality of that is just not even because you're you're doing exactly what those soldiers are doing but you're also trying to like tape up someone's blown off leg with like a plaster he's got like you know barely scrapes a high school education and he's suddenly shipped out and he's supposed to be like in charge of like the medical care for like an entire inventory like it's absolutely wild so i just wanted that side of things to be fleshed out and then you know you see him return home and you see the lingering burden and anxiety and fear that he brings home from having seen like extremely horrible things like that there's one particular scene in the film that to actually see it represent on screen like it was bad enough in the book having to read the description of it but to actually see it represented on screen was like really really intense and I I can't imagine having to get my head around like physically seeing that in the field and then and then like being able to just be like oh well back to work the next day like that obviously has a a burden so and you see you see all this the impact of of, on him to a point but then I think if it was going to address the opioid crisis in more depth it wouldn't be like he eventually goes to the doctor and then the doctor gives you him oxycontin and then all of a sudden he's a smack addict like it felt for a film that is essentially two hours 20 that was a big leap wasn't it within a very long film (laughs) 
it leaps suddenly and it's like that stuff is interesting and is worth exploring but it's not explored in a way that i think is particularly coherent no you have to make a bit of a mental leap there don't you yeah so we both agreed that i guess the most compelling section was the part in Mm. the war but how do we sort of like generally feel about the way that it was structured and, and weighted especially with comparison to the book i suppose we've sort of talked about that a little bit but was there anything else in particular on in that sense our discussion kind of feeds into this a bit doesn't it really that this you've got this strange structure of kind of three stories in one so you've got this young guy and his girlfriend and their relationship you've got him as a soldier and his you know the ptsd that he has to face afterwards like you know devastating effect of being a drug addict and these things all kind of overlap and sometimes they make a lot of sense sometimes they don't but then in the book and the film my main problem is that there is so much weight given to this bank robbery side of things which i would Mm. argue is the least interesting part i just don't really care like you know i want to talk about the fact that these people are enlisted and then thrown away whereas this film wants to talk about the fact that it's basically like i felt like it was trying to be baby driver sometimes like the tone was slightly all over the place it begins with a bank robbery and it's just it's really fixated on these slick scenes about robbing banks and running away and you know the tension of the getaway car and all of this kind of stuff um you mentioned the tone there that was one thing that particularly felt off for me it's really erratic because it goes from like being this like quite a cute romance story in the beginning i guess yeah and then they've got this like entire like extremely overwhelming and intense and actually like visually a bit much war aspect oh yeah like big trigger warnings for sort of violent as not pull any punches and then and then you've got the coming back and getting invested in drugs which has this like weird comedy like it almost feels a bit like it's trying to ape like you mentioned baby driver which i think is a really good reference point for me it felt like it was trying to get that like train spotting level of like isn't it sort of funny but it's really depressing but they're all quite funny but also it is extremely depressing like it feels like it was trying to go for those highs and lows but it just it didn't get that like i'm just thinking of the section with the safe like that side of things I and the stuff about with the that. car yeah. so like tonally it just felt really odd and I, I think the other thing for me as well is that I don't think the pacing of it was necessarily bad but it says a lot to me that again that midsection again coming back to it the war side of stuff the pacing of that felt really great yeah that was really strong wasn't it <laughs> this has flown by and then you get to the other side and you're just like oh god and I think it's very interesting to me that you also picked up on the, the fact that like the focus seems to be on the bank robbery side of stuff and that is sort of like almost the least interesting thing about it. Oh, it is. It was the same in the book. I want to talk about the fact that, you know, people have no choice but to do these things in this situation and how horrific is that? But really, I'm just being made to think like, oh, and then his life turned into an action film. Yeah, that's what I mean. It doesn't actually, I don't think it gives proper care and attention to the fact that like, actually, it's pretty shit that someone went to fight, whether you agree with that or not, for his country and then comes home and is dealing with the trauma of all of that. But there's absolutely no support system whatsoever so then he finds himself with a drug problem and then he has absolutely no money so he's having to like turn to crime to like fund his habit yeah like it's just wild i think it's interesting sort of from a production point of view as Mm. well like the big action set points so being overseas part i guess the bank robbery side of stuff it felt just like extremely like hello we are the people who made the avengers it definitely paid off in that they've obviously got the budget they were 
were allowed to do like whatever they want. But like everything else to me did weirdly feel like a bit of a parody. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. That's the only way I can think of describing how like tonally all over the place it is. Well again, it the style of this film, the way that it has been made, doesn't reflect the story at all. They don't no. go hand in hand. Like if you're trying to represent this story, why would you need like super over stylized, slow-mo, distracting, like changing ratios, changing looks, changing style every single chapter, like all of these special effects, like why would that need to be used to tell this story. It doesn't make sense. No, the two things don't marry up, do they? And I I think that's particularly why I was interested when I saw that the Russo brothers had optioned this in particular, like this story, mm-hmm. because having read it and knowing about it, I was just a bit like, oh, okay, that's not the direction that I thought they were going to go in, but maybe they're just trying to kind of get away from being so associated mm-hmm. with like the superhero sphere. But for me, it just felt like, the way I've seen it described online, I've just remembered this, is that Martin Scorsese, right, had a lot to say about what he thinks about like the superhero landscape the impact that it has had on the film industry as a whole and it's like the Russo brothers were like oh we need to do something to impress Martin Scorsese like (laughs) what can we do oh we'll make this serious film about like war and drugs but it's not it's not impressive it just feels like like we know you can put together a really slick production and use every tool in the book and make something that's very visually cool when you're doing avengers but why would you need that for this film everything about it just felt extremely jarring and that's down to like the casting the the one thing that i just couldn't get past and i say this with like all of my love in my heart for him but like tom holland he's just not convincing he's not nico walker is he it's like every single time he was like effing and jeffing all over the shop like what Peter Parker wash your mouth out I know Peter Parker like trying to hit on a girl and have sex with her like please no no he's here for cuddles only I think it would make sense if I mean maybe this is just personal as well but again with book and things if it felt like there was more of a fall from innocence as in Cherry was this innocent Tom Holland-ish person who transforms into something very different it would make a lot more sense but I don't think Cherry was really like that from the beginning was he? He was never a, a Tom Holland character no and I think that's the one of the interesting things for me is that like Cherry in film form is presented as like oh he's a bit of a waste of space you know wasn't necessarily all bad like had some good prospects but that wasn't the case for Nico Walker like at all and I don't think it's even the case I don't think it's even implied in the book that like he was a perfectly normal person like he's he was presented as someone who was like pretty much like a bit of a ne'er-do-well anyway yeah and just sort of felt further down this little like rabbit hole so it was a really strange casting choice wasn't it I was gonna say there was one other thing relating to Tom Holland and the production actually that I'd made a note of that I really have to acknowledge and it is this completely bananas use of voiceover and like the fourth wall breakout that just completely disappears at one point it's like here's this device and then they stop using it for the rest of the film yeah actually I'd forgotten about that because it was something that we both discussed we were like oh okay they're doing this this is happening is it and then it just like as little like fleabag-esque asides and then that stops the only other two things that I particularly wanted to raise regarding is is that there's a scene that going into this was like so hyped up do you know what i forgot the scene and why is it april because it's like two seconds long and it's so blown out of proportion everyone stop overreacting that is nothing there's basically just a scene where he's going through the medical checks and stuff when he's being enlisted when he's signed up and it's a scene where he obviously has to bend and have his cavities checked 
correct. But everyone was like, oh my God, butthole scene, butthole scene. So we were like, oh, okay, okay, cool. Wondering what this is going to be. And basically it's just because it's shot from the perspective of like his butt. the camera being inside. But it honestly is two seconds long. It's nothing. It barely raises a titter, really. It's it's absurd that I was like, oh, I feel let down by this. Talking about that is truly not a spoiler because Tom no. Holland's anus does not have any kind of bearing on the rest of this film. <laughs> Do you think it was designed to be like the like the syringe in the penis train spotting? Yeah, 100%. They were like, oh, we need like an edgy scene that everyone's going to be talking about. Oh my God, the butthole. It's just nothing. I think... You could blink and miss it. It's that quick. We did. I think I had to be like, be like, oh no, it has happened. That was it. Great. Not enough focus on the butthole for me. <laughs> the thing was with this film is it had like built up by the time we got to the end, right? It had built like, up like a level of, of goodwill with me. And then you get to the stage where he goes to, it's not a spoiler, he's arrested. He, he wrote the book from in prison. So I mean, you know, there you go. <laughs> He goes to prison and then there's an entire like ending period where it just takes this like absolutely strange shift. And while it was happening, I was just texting you being like, well, I just know that factually this is not the case and this is blah, blah, blah. And it just turns into this like weird, oh, happy ending. And after two hours and 20 minutes of watching this film, you then have like the rest of his life within about 45 seconds or like his entire time in prison. What was that epilogue about? I don't know. I don't even know if I can hand on heart recommend this. I will say that it definitely wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. That is very true. We both went in with such low expectations of this film. I was like, I thought we weren't even going to be able to see sit through it and we'd have to turn it off and it is not that bad absolutely isn't like not as bad as it could be i guess that's like literally my review there's truly not really much of a reason to watch it unless you're a tom holland i was gonna say tom holland perfectionist that's not what i mean is it a tom (laughs) just a tom holland fan completist what's the word that's it i was going perfectionist completist do you know that would actually be like more more interesting i guess potentially than than watching this film is it watching devil all the time again one it would be watching that and b it would be just like spending some time researching what nico walker is doing now like that's more interesting to me it is nico walker as a personality yeah i mean i want to say fascinating He's probably actually not fascinating at all and would be quite annoying to know. But there's something a bit fascinating about him as a persona. Morbid curiosity there. Very morbid. Emphasis on the morbid. Extremely, like, can't stop watching because outcome may not be good. Car crash. And yet can't turn away. Like, that's how I feel Oh, yeah. It's worth noting, actually, that he hasn't got any affiliation with this film, nor will he watch it. Took the money and ran. I think you've got a lot of nerve, mate. But also... I think the thing that I have saw repeatedly mentioned in a couple of interviews I read with Nico Walker in in the build-up and immediate aftermath of Cherry's the film's release was that he was just like I mean I don't really want to relive it because fair. I wrote the book which was reliving it oh, so like fair. why would I want to yeah. watch the film that's very true where that it isn't like a hundred percent my vision it's the fact they've yeah. taken my book and then they've kind of gone like oh we're going to go in this direction with it I would like to see him view that final sequence when Tom Allen grows a moustache that's not real I would be really interested to see what he makes of it but I just I just feel like he won't I think he'll just like take the money and just be like thank you you very much Russo brothers someone should have said no to you but they didn't and I'm glad they didn't because I'm gonna make bank on this thanks for the money that's given me enough to dye my hair pink for the rest of my life 
So from Cherry to something that is wildly different, wildly different. Couldn't be more different. Could not be more different, but you may have checked it out because it also popped up on streaming recently. So Moxie is a comedy drama film directed by Amy Poehler. It's her second time in the director's seat after her debut Wine Country, which landed on Netflix in 2019. This film, Tamara Chesna and Dylan Mayer adapted the screenplay from a 2015 novel of the same name by Jennifer Matt. You. The book is aimed at uh, a young adult audience or a YA audience and so in turn is the film so you can kind of, I guess it's kind of like a YA high school comedy. It stars Hadley Robinson, Alicia Pascal-Pena, Lauren Tsai, Patrick Schwarzenegger, Nico Haraga, Sydney Park, Josephine Langford, Clark Gregg, Ike Barentholtz, Amy Poehler and Marcia Gay Harden. A short synopsis. So fed up with the sexist and toxic status quo at her high school, a shy 16 year old finds inspiration from her mother's rebellious past and anonymously publishes a zine that sparks a school-wide coming-of-age revolution. So the film was released on Netflix for streaming on the 3rd of March and this is I think gonna have to be a spoiler-filled chat because we've been quite good at steering away from spoilers recently in a lot of things but I when I was making notes I would find it incredibly difficult to review this film without spoiling some things so I think we're gonna have to spoil it a bit apologies like Cherry this film is also based on a book so I wanted to talk about that again first so April you have read this book I have not it looks like something that we would both absolutely have loved as a teenager it only came out a couple of years ago didn't it so um what did you think of the book when you read it so I read it fairly swiftly in 2017 after it came out mostly because it was extremely relevant to my interests it covers things like zines riot girl movement so it definitely felt like it was not necessarily pitched at me specifically but it definitely was interesting to kind of read a book that felt like the product of someone who'd lived through that period of time Mm -hmm. writing about it for a younger audience to inspire which is definitely the case I think for Jennifer Mattel so it's sort of bringing those ideas into a modern context which I think the film does in itself too which we'll probably come on to so I was really interested to see how the adaptation would work especially as Amy Poehler is involved I'm a big fan of Amy Poehler's work over the years so when I saw that she was pitched to direct it it sort of felt like lots of my interests converging Hmm. I was going to ask about Amy Poehler actually because have you seen her other the other film that she directed Uh, Wine Country yeah yeah I have I quite liked it really because it it was I can't remember the specificities of who was in it I think Tina Fey's in it I think Maya Rudolph's in it and April Powell's in it. It's basically like every single woman I love from a particular era of comedy, mm-hmm. specifically Saturday Night Live, was in it. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of an interesting look at the women of that particular age and kind of how they grapple with like getting older and stuff. So it was it was interesting to see that she was sort of then pivoting to doing something that was about like a younger audience mm. for younger people. So I guess I was pretty hyped going into it. I had also completely forgotten though that it was coming out until very close to the time Mm, when mm. it was going to be appearing on Netflix so it was nice to have a bit of a surprise I at the time I did really like the book I mean like all YA I think you have to approach it with an understanding that it isn't necessarily being pitched for me despite the fact that it covers loads of things I'm interested in it's like it's not unfortunately you are no longer a young adult April I am not the target audience so you know there were things in it that I didn't particularly like but then I think like your average like 
14, 15, 16 year old is not going to be like, oh, well, I wish, really wish they'd unpacked the levels of feminism slightly more. You're saying it's not a dissection of intersectional feminism? Absolutely not. So I think that those criticisms that I sort of had about the book were pretty much null and void, really, when it's not aimed at me. I mean, that's sort of, sort of where I was sort of sitting in terms of like level of expectation going into it. It's interesting as well that I was thinking about the fact that we've watched quite a few high school films recently. I mean, they never, obviously they never faded, but they have had this kind of renaissance recently with high school based films of quite a high caliber. So like eighth grade, book smart, even to all the boys to an extent. So it's kind of, this film is coming out at an interesting time, isn't it? Along with those other things. So watching this film, I kind of went in or rather came out of it in two minds. I was kind of looking at it as an adult watching it, but also trying to imagine Mm. how I would have felt as a teen watching it so how does it feel for you kind of across the board as yeah as an adult and how would it have felt as a young person if you'd watched it at the time when you were younger my adult take on it is that it's fine and a nice time but flawed yes I think I could probably spend an extended period of time unpicking the things that I thought didn't work or the queries that I had or the things that I felt were just like wildly ineffective but I had a nice time watching it as a teenager I would have been like full obsessed Mm -hmm. this would have been like extremely my shit I would have probably like gone down a complete rabbit hole of like zine making like I will say that there is as a person in their 30s there is a scene where Vivian who is the main character sort of discovers that her mum was really actively involved in the riot girl movement in the 90s and this is like extremely cringeworthy but also (laughs) there is a moment where she listens to Rebel Girl by Bikini Kill for the first time ever like the context in the film is that she's never heard this song before and I was like full sobbing Mm. because watching a young girl listen to this song and just be extremely inspired by it and then like you could like unpack to death the flaws of the right girl movement and what it was and what it should have been etc etc but like full disclosure I was sobbing like a child because this person has just discovered the work of Kathleen Hanna and I know how I know the impact that like Kathleen Hanna as a musical figure and as a person within a within a movement had on me so to just like visually watch someone going through that I was like no joke pretty moved by it so I just would have been obsessed with it as a teenager this would have been like perfect like I'm gonna go and listen to all of these bands that are like referenced to like Amy Poehler's character at one stage wears a Sleater Kinney t-shirt mm-hmm. like I cannot pretend that I wasn't like extremely moved by that yeah I completely know where you're coming from it's a very it's, it's a good natured film it's well meaning it's likeable it's heart is in the right place all of those things it's I think it is quite uplifting to watch as an adult as you say it's a bit cringe in places maybe a bit on the nose but for us but you know for some people that also you know for some young people watching this film that might also be the first time they ever hear like Rebel Girl or learn that zines are a way of self-expression absolutely like it is extremely like entry level 101 to all of these things we were all there though weren't we (laughs) yeah and I see that I've seen that criticism banded about quite a lot which I, I completely take on board because I don't think it gets into the nuances of like intersectionality and it Mm. does feel on a base level like extremely white feminism and that is Mm. my big critique about it is that like Vivian is like probably the least interesting character in it and she's posited as like the main protagonist Mm. but like Claudia and Lucy her friends are like way more interesting to me and I wish there'd been more focus on them and that's something they could have made the decision to do from a film point of view because it's definitely not the case in the book everything comes via Vivian okay but I think the thing is that it's just like for 
me felt like a particularly like good jumping off point. I mm. wouldn't present it to someone and go like, oh, if you're interested in like the riot girl movement and like feminism, then like watch Moxie. I would, it feels like there's probably like a completely lengthy reading list thereafter. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing as well that I know I flagged to you was that like this film extremely exists in a post-Booksmart landscape. The tone of this, the vibe it gives off, the relationship between Claudia and Vivian is just like, that dynamic has existed historically in teen movies since the dawn of time, but the relationship they have and the way they're presented and the way that they are within their high school setting, it does just remind me of Booksmart. And I do think we are now in that lane in the same way that I think a lot of, I guess, high school comedies and stuff were, were affected by like Superbad, for example. It feels like we are now in a post book smart world yeah i wholeheartedly agree with that definitely definitely you touched on a couple of things there that kind of feed into the the bigger issues that are tackled mm-hmm. in this film so obviously the crux of the stories that vivian and her friends are sick with the sexism in their school there's this you know annual awards that students put together for the students where you know people are awarded for things like having the best rap and as you say like for some young viewers this will be quite an early exploration of some of these themes and it is positive to an extent that there's there's a presentation of feminism through Vivian and her friends which is somewhat intersectional in that you've got Claudia Vivian's friend who's a second generation immigrant, Lucy is black, you've got a disabled student in a wheelchair so there's I guess a good amount of representation across the board for different types of people and the experiences that they've had but as you also said I guess one of the, the biggest flaws of this film probably and I try and like you I've tried not to be too sniffy about feeling like it's a bit paint by numbers in terms of Mm -hmm. some of the things but I think there is still something they could have done around not centering Vivian so much because she does she benefits from a lot of the privilege that the others don't have in the same way and I think it is quite evident when some of those other characters we get to spend a little bit of time with them and they touch on the fact that you know it seems like Claudia's a goody goody who has a really overbearing mother but actually there's a lot you know there's a lot going on in her family her mum wants the best for her she's hard on her because she didn't you know she wasn't afforded some of these opportunities so Claudia feels like a lot of responsibility um when Lucy starts at the school so Lucy's a new student and she off the bat is having problems with Mitchell who is this jock played by Patrick Schwarzenegger and his character actually is absolutely vile and really really effective but there's something extremely dark going on there that isn't just about sexism is there there's there's you can tell how loaded that entire scenario is he's not just picking on her because she is a new girl and we don't get to interrogate that at all I mean I know that that would be an even bigger subject for a film like this to kind of bite off and try and chew but they have made the decision to fully centre on Vivian and her you know her relationships her relationship with her mum the fact that she's annoyed that her mum's got a new boyfriend so everyone else is kind of represented in a a bit of a light footed way and then we spend a bit too much time with her I think that's the thing for me is that like all these things that you've just mentioned are like loosely touched upon so you get this kind of like brief acknowledgement of actually the stuff that Claudia is dealing with at home and the stuff that like Lucy is experiencing within a school setting and more generally but it's sort of like acknowledged in like a yeah you know we've touched on that so you know that that's happening and blah blah like it just feels like this weird mentioning it because it would be bizarre to not mention it but then because you've mentioned it I almost want you to unpack and look at that a lot more Mm -hmm. 
because mm. that's more interesting to me but you're not going to do that you're going to walk away and you're just going to get back on board with Vivian and like that is fine like I don't know how many young people are going to be like particularly irked with that and that's probably doing them a complete disservice but like I don't I think actually if like this is your first exposure to like any of those things you're probably not going to expect like a, a 20 minute section on no. like, the struggles that Claudia feels at home and the pressures that she's under versus the, what the equivalent pressure that mm. Vivian is under and vice versa but it just I don't know I think the main thing for me is that like Vivian is really the least interesting person by far is the least interesting character and I think actually by just moving her off centre stage and maybe focusing on someone else that would have like made quite a bit of difference without having to as you say like unpack things in a lot of depth would have been interested to see what the film would have been like if they'd done that instead Um, there was one other thing as we've said it's kind of across the board this film is quite light-footed because it is an introduction to some key important themes as well as like subcultural movements you were talking about kind of riot girl and music and zine making and all of these kinds of things and it is it is entry level stuff but then later on and I wanted to ask you about this in relation to the book too later on quite late and this is the spoilerific bit I guess later on in this film as in I don't know maybe about 20-15 minutes from the end they introduce something that is so heavy that it knocked me sideways and I was like yeah. holy fucking shit there's 15 minutes left of this film and there this topic has no room to breathe so I think the thing that I've been struggling to get my head around and I think it's just because I did read it such a long time ago in the grand scheme of things is that I can't remember at what stage this like assault mm. plot line is brought in in the book I'm fairly confident that it's like it's like resolved slightly better than it mm. is in the film because what happens in the film is you've got this entire like thing going on with the zine and how like and we are talking about the you know like the awards that are sexist the girls being held to a different standard about their clothing and these are like these are like fairly real world things that Mm -hmm. like as a teenage girl I would have been completely outraged with and I understand that like that's the main focus because they are in a high school setting and there is this lingering vibe throughout that like Mitchell this like jock golden boy is like a piece of shit and no one particularly likes him but everyone tolerates him because he's like the star quarterback or whatever it is that they play so that vibe is like extremely present in the film he's grim isn't he and he's an asshole but i'm fairly certain that like it isn't just thrown in towards the end of the book and then like anyway bye because that's the only way i can think of describing it is that when i wrote it down it's that p.s rape anyway the film is finished see you later i was like this is huge like how can you lob this at the end and go this guy's not just an asshole he he actually rapes people people I knew that it was coming having read the book and I was really interested to see at what stage they placed this. We're just watching the clock tick down on your watch like oh we're almost I was, done. honestly and then it got like closer and closer to the end and I was like hey do you know what maybe they've actually just taken this out maybe they've just decided to like not do it and it would have been like a fairly notable plot and mission but you know like it's Netflix and maybe they just made the decision universally like they weren't going to go there but then they just throw it in at the end but the way that it's thrown in baffles me because it's like they're all having this like big 
group thing outside the school and then like the character who was assaulted by Mitchell comes they're all like sharing stuff I guess Mm. and she just happens to mention it as an offhand thing and then it then this entire situation then spirals into this like every other girl like sharing shit stuff and it's like no 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 I can we not are we gonna deal with this it's not that nothing is more important than anything else but I would really like this to be focused on yeah right I found it interesting in again it made me think of sex education and in that Mm -hmm. so much time and care was given to a plot line about a girl being masturbated against on a bus which again is a a hugely traumatizing thing to happen and the tv show spent a lot of time with that acknowledging that this is a big deal hugely traumatizing and damaging and it's not okay and it was handled so delicately and given a lot of space so something like that is given that much space but this is like actually just lobbed into the end I do feel like they should have either brought it in sooner or taken it out. Like, I think that would have been better than, I don't know, just mentioning it in quite an offhand way as the credits roll. I think if you're going to have, like, the confidence to tackle this, I think you have to do it properly. I think you have to bring it in early or at least have it implied. You know, something like this, like, you can't just throw it in at the end because it just does it a bit of a disservice, mm-hmm. really. And I think that's the thing when it when I refer to it as being, like, entry level or, like, feminism 101 or whatever it is. It does just feel a bit like you're throwing all of these like fairly weighty things at the board and seeing what sticks and then sort of saying like, oh, well, that's a jumping board. Go off in that direction. And it just felt very odd. Mm. Felt totally very odd in a way that I've just sort of like thought about quite a lot since. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, have you got any other additional thoughts you wanted to talk about? I kind of that pretty much is a summary for me. Um, it did bring me like lots of joy and it did make me feel like slightly hopeful for the teens. Oh yeah, it was an upbeat it was an upbeat watch. And as you say, like, you know, the criticism we've just made, like it is a good natured film. It is likable, and you can say that its heart is in the right place and they've just they've made some mistakes in terms of maybe the structure and the tone of it a bit. And I think like it's got a really great soundtrack, which I would encourage you to seek out if you haven't already done so on Spotify. Listen to it quite a lot because there's lots of dwellers like the bikini kill like obligatory <laughs> reference there's like Princess Nokia there's some Julie Ruin on there there's some Lucy Dacus covering the Vian Ross you know like there's a great appearance from the Linda Lindas who are like an LA garage punk band who are all completely young there's some gossip that's great also you've got Nico Haraga playing Seth and he's adorable isn't absolutely he absolutely adorable if you enjoyed him in Booksmart watch him in this it's just a lovely opportunity to watch him again in another teen film oh lovely and I think the thing is like it's not for me is it it's not for you it's, it's for it's aimed at a younger audience despite the fact that it's like reference points are like all things that I really enjoy but it's actually written for like the generation beyond us it made me hopeful for, for the young for the young people yeah recommended as a watch if you are interested in any of the the themes that we were talking about just maybe measure your expectations in terms of coming into this film as an adult what it will do for you So we kind of briefly alluded to it in our news section, but for our main topic this time around, we thought that we would cover the nominations for the 93rd Academy Awards. That's this year's Oscars. Now, we normally cover the Oscars pre and post ceremony, and we thought we did this last year. We selected some nominees, who we thought would win and who we want to win. So we thought we would just do it again. I think it's been... I wasn't fussed about the prospect of the Academy Awards, but then it's been quite nice to 
reflect upon the year as it was in terms of cinema and I think I was just particularly surprised when it came to the nominations that I'd managed to see considerably more and made me think that perhaps this past weird year hasn't been necessarily particularly entirely shit on the film front Mm. but um maybe we'll get to that so the ceremony itself the for the 93rd academy awards this year will take place on sunday the 25th of april it's a two-month shift from its usual placing of late february early march i did have a look and the last time it was in april was in 1988 which was the 60th anniversary so the shift much like the baftas was to accommodate the impact of covid on the film industry and the subsequent delays that the pandemic put on the release schedules of many films a lot of things were held back or pushed forward onto streaming etc etc the producers for this year's ceremony quite excitingly steven soderbergh is involved so that's pretty cool the host itself has yet to been announced i did see today actually that four people have apparently been approached but they gave no names so it's because they all said no (laughs) they were like absolutely not i've had to watch how crap all the other ones are I don't want to do it. The nominees themselves were announced on March the 15th in a live stream by Nick Jonas and Priyanka Chopra. Did you watch any of the live stream? I I think you were at work at the time. I (laughs) was working, but I had it up on Twitter.com and it was the most embarrassing thing in the entire world. But good for them. I mean, I think they're both perfectly likeable, but I wouldn't, I just wouldn't have checked in on the nominations for similar reasons to the BAFTAs because I was dreading it. I think I just happened to be online and thought like it's it's sitting there on Twitter, so I might as well i guess we'll come to some of the nominees in a second but it's the first time that two women have been nominated in the directing category in the same year so that's chloe Zhao being the first woman of color as well nominated in the category um emerald fennel is the other person nominated for best director chloe Zhao as well and and lee isaac chung who directed minari are also the first asian directors to be nominated in the same year um significantly steven yun is the first asian american to be nominated for best actor so it's sort of been quite a nice year of good firsts I think. So when it comes to the nominations themselves, Mank leads with 10 nominations though not screenplay which we did reference earlier following behind with 6 nominations apiece are The Father Judas and the Black Messiah Minari, No Band Land Sound of Metal and The Trial of the Chicago 7. Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman received five nominations. Judas and the Black Messiah is the first Best Picture nominee to have all black producers. That's pretty significant. And on the streaming front, because this year films released on streaming platforms have been allowed to be nominated, whereas usually they have to have had a cinematic runs they have to have been shown on a theatre if they're a streaming platform release they would have been a bit stuck otherwise wouldn't they but they wouldn't have been able to do it this year so the rules were changed so 16 films produced and distributed by Netflix this year account for 35 nominations in all of the categories except live action short and international feature so that's a little bit of an overview about the nominations themselves so what was our kind of general reaction to the nominees this year I've got a few things I particularly want to talk about, but was there anything that really stood out to you? Any omissions? Anything that you particularly took away from just sort of having a look at what made the cut this year? Yeah, I mean, I tuned into this with like one eye closed, just kind of not daring to look because I just thought it really would top off quite a shit period of time to have terrible um, Academy Award nominations as well and not I mean generally speaking not a bad roundup of films and as you said it's not and it's also not a bad roundup of films in that it has been a year in which (laughs) 
75% of the time we were stuck at home with cinemas closed, most film productions shut down and all of that kind of stuff. So it's been really nice to reflect on the calibre of kind of filmmaking that we've had and the things that have been released that we've been able to watch from home. So that's been lovely. We're slowly inching away from Oscars So White, which is has got to be a good thing. And all of those firsts are amazing. However, it is the 93rd Academy Awards. So it's only taken... <laughs> 93 years to get to this point which is oh my god it's sickening really pleased to see i mean i i think you and i probably both expected nomadland to get a huge number of awards this year oh yeah really really pleased to see it though because we both loved it minari great as well i think minari judas and the black messiah and nomadland you know i really expected them to get a lot of nominations and it's lovely to see as well not surprised by films like The Father and Ma Rainey, even though I haven't seen either of them. They feel like the kind of films that kind of fit the Academy Awards bill in some respects, especially The Father. Quite surprised to see another round get so many nominations. And also... Isn't that nice? Yeah, lovely. And also, we were talking about Sound of Metal with BAFTAs. I was really pleased about, and not too surprised about, I was more surprised to see the Sound of Metal coming up so much with these awards. I really wasn't expecting it, to be honest. I guess what we'll talk about snubs, but... I expected to see more of One Night in Miami in some of the categories. I guess I know people talk a lot about the fact that the Academy Awards don't favour um, a theatre-based film very much, maybe, or very highly. But I did, when I watched One Night in Miami, I thought, God, this is such a, a dead cert for some of the Academy Award categories and surprisingly didn't happen. Same with The Five Bloods as well. I thought Spike Lee and The Five Bloods would probably, I don't know, appear in a few more areas. Borat has been nominated for two Oscars. Oscar nominee Borat. I think the first Borat was nominated maybe for an Academy Award I or something. I think it was, But yeah. remember when we decided that Borat was actually funnier than we cared to admit last year? Hey, I will tell you right now that we both collectively, though independently, had a good time watching Borat. You thought I was joking. I watched it and had a bloody good time. And then you watched it and had a good time. And we both had to admit that we found the first film really funny. Yeah. Awful. But yes, wasn't quite expecting the Borat representation. So hilarious. I mean, I, I don't think we would have seen his house ever, but I would have liked to have seen his house because I did really enjoy that film and held it in very high regard. Uh, I thought we might have seen maybe First Cow crop up as well. Again, a film I haven't seen yet and that is is not anywhere so yeah there were definitely still as usual a few things and we'll get into snubs again as i said in a bit maybe in a bit more detail the only other thing i think we should probably do is get the mank discussion out of the way but do you want to i say discussion brief discourse do you want to talk about your reactions a bit as well first and then maybe we just like say something about mank and then that's that <laughs> Yeah, so I've got I've got a few snubs that I will just quickly address. So I'm absolutely baffled by the complete lack of acknowledgement for how fucking good Delroy Lindo was in De Five Bloods. This has been the biggest surprise, isn't it? Like No, I watched that film and my biggest takeaway at the end of it was like, oh well Delroy Lindo's gonna sweep the board at the Oscars yeah. and all of the other award ceremonies because he's putting like his life and 
blood into this performance and it's like an incredible performance Mm -hmm. in a film which has got like a vast array of great performances I was really surprised that there was no nomination for Dominique Fishback for Judas and the Black Messiah Mm -hmm. I think that's extremely remiss I think that that supporting actress category is like fine I truly don't have much of an opinion on that category because it's just like what I mean firstly poor Glenn Close I think you should probably just stop putting her through it actually she needs no more nominations without wins for that film as well no thanks so I was really surprised there was no Dominique Fishback I was really surprised by the lack of acknowledgement for First Cow I haven't seen it but it's like universally Mm -hmm. loved by critics and all and I think it's a real shame for that film and also for Kelly Reichard who's a a director whose work I really like so I was just really surprised so those are my my particular snubs other than the ones that you'd sort of pointed out yeah I was quite I think Best Director I found like quite surprising in the way that we saw like Thomas Vinterberg I mean obviously we both really liked another round but Thomas Vinterberg was there but like Regina King wasn't Spike Lee and I think the only thing on directing front is that I was quite smug that Aaron Sorkin didn't get directed for Trial of Chicago 7 I was going to be so deeply distressed if I'd had to log on and see that he was nominated for that film I mean I could monologue at length about that film but I won't so I was just quite pleased that he wasn't there but with reference to your previously asked question regarding Mank we did not discuss Mank on this podcast we couldn't be bothered we had grand plans to do like a David Fincher special I mean I spent a lot of last year watching David Fincher films so we both really like David Fincher there's lots to talk about there like we could do a ranking like all of this stuff Mm -hmm. in preparation for Mank and then Mank comes out Neither of us can be bothered to watch it. It gets to the stage like probably November, December last year. And I'm I'm thinking like oh, 2020 releases, I need to watch. I'm going to have to watch Mank. But in order for me to watch Mank, I'm going to have to finally watch Citizen Kane, which I did watch. Great film. Have you heard about it? No, tell me more. I'm, I'm so glad you gave uh, Citizen Kane a glowing review. I mean... I will be honest and say that the thing that was most jarring for me when I finally watched Citizen Kane was just realising how many references in it like constantly come up in The Simpsons. (laughs) So I watched Citizen Kane, great film. um, And then I watched Mank and Mank is just fine. It is just fine. I like films that are about the film industry. Like, that is a thing. One of my favourite films in the world is Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain is about the film industry. So I'd wanted to like it. I'm a big David Fincher fan. It doesn't... I don't like having to be like, oh, it's just fine. Like, this this David Fincher film, in a year where nothing good was happening, to know that there was a David Fincher film coming out, I was, like, fucking hyped. I cannot stand Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman in lots of makeup. We haven't seen that before, April. I think we need to just accept that if Gary Oldman's got a wear a lot of like latex makeup he's gonna be he's nominated a nomination. across the board I simply just I do not think Mank is for me I think it looks awful like I think if you're going to shoot a film in black and white then you need to actually think about like little things like the costuming like the impact that like what the film picks up from a colour palette how it will look when it's transferred to black and white. Like, there is a lot of interesting discussion about the fact that, like, if you go back in time and you look at, like, the silent film industry, the way that they would put makeup on people is so different mm, to how you do mm. it in when you're doing colour photography and filming because of the way that it picks up. So, Mank just, to me, looked like a big old mess and I was bored and it was fine and I'm glad I've watched it and, like, I think Amanda Seyfried is, is very good in it. But apart from that, I think the thing is that, like, like, I just, 
I've been really baffled with the fact that like it is universally beloved but I think it is the fact that it is David Fincher it is a film about the film industry it ticks a lot of boxes doesn't it yeah it's, a, it's someone who was a screenwriter and did all this like key work in a very integral period in Hollywood so I can't say I'm particularly surprised I'm just finding it baffling and then when you look at the categories and you see that Gary Oldman sits in there and I think about all of the other actors in a leading role over the last year there are like so many other people that I would put in there in in particularly mainstream films so that's my take on bank is that it's just like extremely overrated and I think for me it doesn't sit particularly highly in my David Fincher ranking I think if I'd seen it in a cinema I'd probably feel less harshly towards it but I also think I still would have been extremely like it's fine I think it was kind of expected that it would be in there quite a lot because it does film does feel like a film made for people who, I don't know, make decisions in the Academy Awards. So I accept that it's in these categories. I will not be happy if it wins. Many, if any, especially in the big ones, I just don't think it deserves to win. I just think that it's like not even one of David Fincher's best films. Oh God, no, absolutely not. Now I've got my mank TED talk out of the way. The Oscars Big Five, these are the categories as follows, which are the ones that are often considered like the most important and the ones that get paid most attention to. So it's best picture, best director, best actor, best actress, best screenplay, and that's original or adapted. So we thought much like last year we would include our little shortlists for these particular categories but we've also tacked on a few extras because I think that it would be interesting to talk about them so the ones that we've added in are the supporting categories for both actor and actress we've obviously included both the adapted and original screenplays we've also included the international feature cinematography just because I don't know those are things that particularly interest us so that is 10 categories that we've gone for So I think the way that we did approach it last year was that we shortlisted who we think will win and who we want to win. Because I think speaking for both of us, when I say there's like sort of often a bit of a disconnect between like who we think it will go to and who we actually in our heart of hearts would want it to go to. Um, Do you think that's the case? Yes, that is true. It's also worth me saying that I've got like absolutely no amazing insight into how these things are going to be chosen. So my I'm just making lucky guesses, really. Pedestrian guesses, as it were. I think the only one actually now of the Best Picture nominees that I haven't seen is The Father, mm-hmm. which I think is nigh on impossible to see at the moment. I think it's only had film festival screenings mm. and I'm not actually sure it's on streaming anywhere at this stage. So it feels a little bit like The Father is this year's The Wife. Do you remember The Wife? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's absolutely The Wife. That is a note that I made. It is The Father is this year's wife. It kind of actually, another thing that I did think of just to quickly say is... I I would be interested in a year where maybe some people may have seen more films than they would usually watch but many others may not have seen as many films this year due to cinema closures and just not being able to access things in their country or their own streaming platforms so I'd just be interesting to know whether people are interested in this year's ceremony in the way that they maybe would usually be. When I was looking back at the nominees and looking back at the things we watched last year I think that we obviously really benefited from having access to the London 
Film Festival. Like we were really fortunate that we we were in the ballot for um, seeing Nomadland yeah, in the right. limited access that it had during London Film Festival. And to have been able to see that in October it was like a hugely big deal. I mean, of Best Picture, I would say Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman. And is Sound of Metal out yet or has it been pushed back? Uh, Sound of Metal is out in the States on streaming. Yeah, but if you're in the UK, all of those films you won't have seen. Like you might not have seen unless you've seen them through festivals or nefarious means. So it's weird actually because the two in that particular category that you can see in the UK are both on Netflix because yeah. they're Netflix releases. Yeah. So that in itself is weird. And I think that's what gives me a slightly skewed perspective mm-hmm. and feeling like I've accomplished lots because <laughs> we have had the fortune to see those. But there's so many of these that like we either haven't been able to talk about or like can't talk about or like there's no point talking about. Because no one else has watched it in, especially, yeah, in the UK. Like there's a few things we would have reviewed already in this podcast that we haven't done because who's going to listen when they haven't had a chance? Yeah, we are acutely aware of that. So I think you're right. It would be really interesting to see if anyone else is fussed about it this year. And I think that's the general consensus across the board has been like, is anyone bothered? Because in a year when you've not been able to go to the cinema, like we care about these things intrinsically because that's just our interest. Also, there's some really good nominations. Like some of the nominations are really good. There's some great films in here. It's just frustrating that so many people haven't had access to them. So unless you've got anything else to add about the nominees, I think we should progress through our who we think will win and who we want to win. So we'll start with actor in a leading role. The nominees, uh, those nominated for actor in a leading role are uh, Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Gary Oldman for Mank and Stephen Yoon for Minari. Um, I think Chadwick Boseman is going to win this. I did watch Ma Rainey's Black Bottom today and I do think that he is exceptionally good in it and I think it's upsettingly a, an amazing final performance. Mm-hmm. So I think it will be like a posthumous honour for him. I would really like Stephen Yoon to win. Uh, we have watched Minari. It was screening as part of the Glasgow Film Festivals and I, I just thought he was amazing in Minari. So I think it would be really great for him to win but I think like Chadwick totally has it in the bag. This is probably the one that I'm most confident about as a lock-in. Yeah. Would love for Stephen Yoon to win. I don't think Riz Ahmed has a hope in hell. I mean, obviously I love Riz, so I would love for him to win. Um, If I saw Stephen Yoon or Riz win, I would be absolutely overjoyed. But it would definitely be Chadwick and for very good reason, because he's given some amazing performances across his whole career as well, not just this film. So, um, and it would be a lovely posthumous thing to happen. So yes, agreed. (laughs) Glad we're in agreement there. So actress in a leading role, Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Andrew Day for The United States versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand for No Man Land and Carrie Mulligan for Promising Young Woman. I think Frances McDormand has this locked in. I sort of do want her to win. I mean, I've seen three of those performances. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen the other two, so I can't obviously say it with extreme confidence, but I just think that like Frances McDormand is very good in that and I would be quite surprised if she doesn't get it. Sorry to follow you and agree but no, I, no, no. I'm pretty confident Frances McDormand will get it. She just will. I just think she will. Um, pretty confident with it. I would like her to win because I think her performance in Nomadland was fantastic and one of my favourite performances of last year. Easily if she doesn't win maybe Viola Davis? I can kind of see it's not going to be Vanessa Kirby. I think the problem with Pieces of a Woman is I, th- I haven't seen it but the best thing I've heard about it is that Vanessa Kirby 
like is completely worthy of being nominated for this i just think that there's that entire shire issue yeah. around pieces of women which i think unfortunately has like completely tanked it carrie mulligan i guess on reflection as well carrie mulligan or viola davis i mean this will probably say that i don't think promising young woman is likely to take away much despite being nominated a lot on to best supporting actor you've got sasha baron cohen for the trial of the chicago seven daniel Kulua for judas and the black messiah leslie odom jr for one night in miami paul racy for sound of metal and lakeith stanfield for judas and the black messiah that's the only thing we didn't talk about actually is the fact that they've both ended up daniel and lakeith both ended up in best supporting actor now with the campaigning i believe that lakeith was put forward for actor in a leading role and daniel kaluuya was left in supporting actor because that's where he's generally been clearing up so i think it was an extremely sensible tactical thing but they've both just been put in best supporting and my concern is that they'll cancel each other out in my head watching that film i i'm so focused on daniel kaluuya's performance in that film i feel like he's the lead which is strange i mean i guess yeah maybe it is the other way around really but i sort of expected to see daniel kaluuya maybe in the lead role and i wasn't Mm -hmm. expect i don't know if i was expecting lakeith really i was quite surprised by lakeith and i was surprised by paul racy as well did not expect that at all no i actually think daniel kaluuya could get it i think he'll get it i am really surprised i mean we didn't mention it in snubs where's alan kim i wish alan kim had got can you imagine i think he should have got a supporting role nomination but i think it's daniel kaluuya and i would like daniel kaluuya to get it oh interesting i had daniel kaluuya forgetting it i mean that performance he is phenomenal in that i sort of wanted to see paul racy get it really sound of metal were you surprised to see him in the category because i was i was really surprised to see him there and i think that like he is phenomenal in that role is he better than daniel Kaluuya is in judas and the black messiah probably not but i just i i really liked him in sound of metal i thought he was absolutely brilliant so i think that i was just like it would be quite nice and i think daniel's gonna walk it which i'm extremely happy with yes. because i think he is brilliant so let's move on to supporting actress this category honestly is a mess so you've got maria bakalova for borat's <laughs> subsequent movie film glenn close for hillbilly elegy olivia Coleman for the father amanda seyfried for mank and young jing young for minari I found it really hard to select from this category. So did I. I think Olivia Coleman will get it. She's extremely likeable. Yeah. And I think from what I have heard, she is very good in The Father. Um, I inexplicably decided that I thought it would be funny if Maria Bakalova wins for Borat subsequent movie film. Comedy value, Maria Bakalova, yeah. This is the one category where I was just like, I don't know, it would be funny, wouldn't it? Just put something random down, Maria Bakalova. She's not going to get it, no way. But um, I think Olivia Coleman, if it's not Olivia Coleman, could be Amanda Seyfried, maybe. She is brilliant in Mank. Like, she's very good in it. Yeah, I'd like Yu Jung Yoon to win it for Minari. It's not going to be Glenn Close for the eighth time or ninth Honest time. Honest to God, if the thing that finally gets Glenn Close and Oscar is Hillbilly Elegy, like... Oh, I refuse to watch it. I think we talked about this. I read the book and I it was fine at the time and the more I think about it, the more I rate it makes me. <laughs> so I have no intention of watching that film unless I physically have to. So let's move on very swiftly to directing so you've got Thomas Vinterberg for another round you've got David Fincher for Mank you've got Lee Isaac Chung for Minari Chloe Zhao for Nomadland and Emerald Fennel for Promising Young Woman I think Chloe Zhao is pretty locked in for this and I would really like to see her win for this I think Nomadland is going to get a lot of wins I feel well I should stop saying I feel confident I've got no reason to think this but I do think Nomadland is going to win in a lot of categories one of which will be best director for Chloe Zhao definitely 
well, unless they really sh- take a shit on us with David Fincher, I think it's going to be a Chloe Shell. If David Fincher wins an Oscar for Mank, I am honestly just like will not be engaging with his work going forward. I won't be angry if Lee Isaac Chung gets it, but... Yeah, absolutely. And I do actually think moving on to adapted screenplay. So you've got Borat nominated, you've got The Father, you've got Nomadland, you've got One Night in Miami and The White Tiger. I think Nomadland here as well will sweep up. Me too. I thought potentially The Father, but probably Mo- Nomadland. It's not going to be Borat. It's not going to be One Night in Miami. I don't think it's going to be The White Tiger. I just keep thinking, imagine if it's Borat. For a best original screenplay, you've got Judas and the Black Messiah. You've got Minari, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal and Trial of the Chicago 7. I think this is the only category where Promising Young Woman will get anything. I think despite the fact that actually I think the screenplay for Promising Young Woman isn't the best. It's funny, isn't it? Because I really don't think it is either. But I think she'll get it. Yeah. I think it will be like the year that Jordan Peele won for Get Out because I think they'll acknowledge like what it is doing. They'll be like, what a novelty this film is, but we can't give it too big an award. But I personally would like to see Darius and Abraham Marder and Derek France get it for Sound of Metal. It's really hard because I really like Minari, Judas and Sound of Metal a lot. I think Judas did have some really strong moments in terms of the screenplay. I don't know. I can't choose what my personal preference would be. I found it quite hard in this category. Yeah, none of them stand out to me as my personal favourite for in terms of screenplay. But um, who cares? Because Promising Young Woman will probably get it. If not, it could be The Trial <laughs> of the Chicago 7. I swear to fucking God, if Aaron Sorkin gets an award for that I film, think it's quite possible. <laughs> no, thank you. Let's move on. International feature. We've got another round. Better Days, Collective, The Man Who Sold His Skin, Covadus Aid. I think it'll go to Thomas Winterberg for another round, which is Denmark's entry. I believe so too, because he's got a surprising number of nominations. So I'm just trying to be strategic here. They obviously hold this film in very high esteem. So I think it will get it for international feature. Which I find slightly bizarre, but like I'm completely here for it. Oh yeah. I mean, I've also chosen it as the one I want to win because I haven't seen the others. (laughs) So process of elimination, I've got no other choice at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So on to cinematography. You've got Judas and the Black Messiah, that was Sean Bobbitt. You've got Eric Messerschmitt for Mank, Darius Wolski for News of the World, Joshua James Richards for Nomad Land, and Faden Papa Michael for The Trial of the Chicago Seven. I think Joshua James Richards will get it for Nomad Land because yeah. if there's one thing about Nomad Land, it's that it looks incredible. The cinematography of it is next level. Yeah. So I think it would be a shame if he doesn't get it. It would be a great injustice, I agree. Absolutely. And then finally, last but not least, best picture. So we've got The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, The Trial of the Chicago 7. So we've got eight nominees this year. I went for Nomadland winning. I would really like to see Minari get it Mm. or The Sound of Metal. I don't think it'll be Sound of Metal. No, I think if Nomadland doesn't get it, I think I'm really hopeful for Minari. Yeah, I agree. I think it will be Nomadland. If it's not Nomadland, it will be Minari. Or they'll take a shit on us with Mank. I feel like Mank, it's either going to be like the morning after Brexit and every election we've had in the past few years where we wake up the next morning full of excitement and Mank has swept the board with Academy Award wins or we're going to wake up and it basically hasn't won anything except maybe like best costume. 
I hope it's the latter. Just like, oh, you had some great makeup there, mate. But they didn't know. That's the point. They didn't know. They might think it was great, though, April. I don't know. It was was Gary Oldman. Congratulations for the person that had to make Gary Oldman look like a bloated seal. So that's our little Oscars roundup, really. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Will you be watching the ceremony stuff? Uh, What time will it be? 3am in the morning? And they're like 2am? I don't know. What else are you doing? Probably sleeping, just getting my beauty sleep. I probably won't, mostly because of the time. If it was happening at a decent time when I was having my dinner, I would probably watch it this year. Do you know what? I was thinking that in my heart of hearts, this will probably upset you, is that like I was really hopeful that we would be at a stage in our country where we could actually socialise and that we, we would have just like watched... When is it again? April, end of April. Steph, we're not going to... God, that's a good few months off me ever being like having physical contact with you. So yeah, no, we won't be... I don't know if I want to sit in bed by myself watching I might just watch it on catch up the next day also I am still a little bit scared that Mank might get lots and lots of things but I think if there is any justice it will probably be Nomadland for a lot of the big categories I think it's going to sweep the board this year in like a in a hopefully a nice way why the hell not so if you have any particular thoughts feelings emotions regarding the nominees for the Academy Awards if there's anything that you think that we should have discussed but we haven't why not let us know if you've done your own selections if you've got really particular strong feelings about who you think will win this year and who won't win and who absolutely doesn't deserve to win at all then please do let us know via the socials send us an at on twitter or drop us a message on instagram or something if you have really stronger feelings about how great mank is though i just don't care please don't bring them to my door i would like someone to explain mank to me the appeal of it men explain mank to me maybe if amanda seyfried wants to give me a ring to chat i might be open to that apart from that you know let us know we're we're interested so after all that discussion let's move on to our obsession of the week what is your staff mechanic well i was going to bring a couple of things up so oh go on some of the things i've been thinking about this week bearing in mind it's only what day is it wednesday spent quite a lot of time cracking jokes about orlando bloom's a life in the day (laughs) that went around on twitter he's having well just having an idyllic time and really showing up for women and minorities i'm really glad that he's using his platform for himself women and minorities um just seemed like it just had to be a spoof except it's not i'm glad we both mutually agree that we're not attracted to Orlando bloom no i like cautiously asked you this because i was slightly scared that you would be like yes i have been in love with him since he was absolutely not and but you were like absolutely not and i was like oh good okay because i don't either no and the distance only grows greater with time so that was one of my things another thing which i am i have said before but i've been watching buffy again this week and i've been watching it with wes we've got in quite a nice routine of watching an episode before bed and I am really fixated on Rupert Giles at this point and as a woman in her 30s he's really hot we're on season three now oh he's in his prime just as he's he's just been fired spoiler he's just such a babe and he keeps running his hand through his hair and like taking his glasses off and it's just quite a lot and I keep reminding Wesley of it every five minutes like isn't he really attractive Anyway, and my other thing I'm actually going to leave for you to talk a bit more about, but it is in fact your presentation given to me on the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So please inform our listeners about what you got up to at the weekend. It's been a big week for me. 
because last week was the first episode of the Marvel television show on Disney Plus, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Um, if you have ever had to encounter me, you will know that I am a big Sebastian Stan fan. I am also extremely enamoured with Bucky Barnes, aka the Winter Soldier. So the fact that they were giving the Winter Soldier and Sam Wilson their own TV show was quite a big deal. And so I had a really, really shit day last Friday and I hadn't had the chance to watch it. And I finally sat down at like eight o'clock on Friday night or something absurd and watched it and had a really nice time with it. And then you were going to watch it. You had expressed mild concern about not knowing anything. April, I could, I honestly couldn't remember anything. Basically asked me, is it going to make sense to me as an outsider? And I was like, yeah, I don't think it's going to be that complicated. I don't think it's going to be as complicated as WandaVision, but I could send you a voice note or I could make you a presentation. Ha ha. And then you were like, oh, that would be quite nice. Yeah, I really latched onto this presentation thing. And also because in my mind, you were giving me a lecture and then you were going to just email over this 17 slide presentation. It's like, no, no, you have to present this to me. So the thing is, I then couldn't sleep on Friday night because of the various things that had happened to me on Friday. So I just was like, had made a start on this presentation. And then it went from being like some bullet points to being like, oh God, I'm actually going to have to explain all of this. So I then had to do like a lot more work, woke up the next morning. And then I said to you like, oh, I've done it. It's 18 slides long. Can I just email it to you? Like, what address do you want to email it to? And you were like, no, no, no. Absolutely not. You're presenting this. If you've made such a thing of beauty, you have to present it to me properly. So I then agreed that we would do this presentation. And then we did. We had a nice Zoom. Had a lovely Saturday afternoon. You answered all my questions. You were very respectful in that you put all of your questions into the chat for me to then come to at the end during the the allotted time for Q&A. And I felt it worked quite well. From my point of view, as the presenter, no issues. You were great. You engaged and asked sensible questions. The only question that wasn't a question, more of a comment, was that Daniel Brühl is hot, which is a fairly fine thing. I also said that twice. You did say it twice. So yeah, that was the presentation I did. It's a real thing that I did do, that I have saved. Um, It was a lovely time. Any excuse to just test my own knowledge. But like, what else am I doing at this stage? What else am I doing? Well, exactly. And then we did watch it on Sunday. And I felt that you said that it had been quite beneficial because you understood. Oh, yeah. I had no clue before. I'd forgotten most stuff, so it was really helpful. I found it extremely informative and entertaining and very well presented. I thought the branding was lovely. It reminded me that Vaughn owes me a presentation on BTS, so I need to remind her about that. And maybe one day I will pay you back with um, a presentation on, I don't know, something. Maybe this is the level of lockdown that we're at, is just trading presentations. We've covered pretty much everything else at this point. Congrats. Congratulations to me. That's us done. You can find us online with Twitter at the first. You can find us on Podbean and other podcast places, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching for The Thirst. Instagram, we're at The Thirst Pod. Our blog is thethirstpod.wordpress.com. And don't forget to check the show notes. And you can also find us on Facebook as well. Bye. Bye. Bye.